Well, as we come to the word of God this morning, let's begin with a word of prayer. Our loving Father, we thank you that you've given us your word, that you have spoken to us. You have spoken us to us in a word that is for us today. And I pray that as we open your word, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would please enable our hearts to see Christ in your word, and that we would be changed by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, with our uh, modern sensibilities and in the young country that we live in, it can be hard to get a grasp on long periods of time. Uh, we, everything is so immediate. Uh, last year seems like a long time ago, much less 10 years or decades and, even, and then go hundreds of years. Um, and so when we talk about uh, 400 years, uh, it just kind of is lumped in that big category of years. It's not a, uh, it's hard for us to wrap our, our arms around. But it's helpful if we kind of rewind and say, okay, what took place 400 years ago, right? 400 years ago, not even a half millennia, and yet uh, it's more time than our country's existed. And it was 400 years ago, it was 1619. Uh, this was still a year before the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock. And so that gives us a sense of 400 years ago, what it was like, what took place 400 years prior. Well, just like the pilgrims are for us today, so it was for the Jews in the first century to the last prophet who had spoken from God. As the New Testament opens... There have been 400 years of silence from the Lord. As a nation, you know, through all the Old Testament, they were used to God speaking to them, sending his representatives to them and giving them his word. From the call of Abraham around 2100 B.C. to the closing of Malachi around 400 B.C., Israel had roughly 1,700 years of God's direct revelation to them. But as we come to the New Testament and to our passage today at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, we're entering into a Jewish society that has been living in God's silence for 400 years. Not only had they been living in silence from the Lord, but they are also been living under Roman rule. This was as you know, a continuing consequence of their disobedience to the Lord. Again, you know the story of the Old Testament. They were chosen by God. They were set apart as His nation, and the Lord made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. And through their many years of their history, God gave them many chances, was gracious to them, and yet they continued to rebel against Him. And even though... God gave them opportunities to repent. They continued in their defiance. And so God punished them by allowing the Assyrians and then the Babylonians to conquer them and to take the people into exile into foreign lands. When they returned from exile, they were still under the rule of a foreign power. 
This was as Daniel had predicted, that the control of the land passed from the Medo-Persian Empire to the Greeks and then to the Romans. And so therefore, again, as we open the pages of the New Testament, Israel is still in some senses a defeated and oppressed people. They are not yet fully free, but they sit under the rule of another. And they haven't heard from God in a long, long time. And so with that as a background, we come to our passage in the Gospel of Luke. And if you aren't there already, I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 1. The Gospel of Luke chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you today, I invite you to use one that's in the pew rack directly in front of you. And you'll find our passage on page 1016, 1016, Luke chapter 1. Now, last week, we looked at the opening four verses of Luke's gospel, and we saw that he pulled from reliable eyewitnesses of the first century in order to compile an orderly account of the life of Christ. And it's in our passage today that he begins to tell that tale. And this is the gospel for a skeptical age. For those who wonder whether the things spoken of Christ are actually true, Luke writes this gospel in order to say, yes, they were true and they did happen. I consulted all of the eyewitnesses. I consulted those who saw it take place. And this is the account now that I've pulled together. So let's read as Luke begins his gospel in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah." to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, 
how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them, And remained mute. And when his time for service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This passage, verses 5 through 25, begin what is known as the infancy narratives in this Gospel of Luke. The infancy narratives, the stories of both John and Jesus as they are young. It runs from verse, the infancy narratives run from chapter 1, verse 5, all the way through the end, really, of chapter 2 in chapter 2, verse 52. And these infancy narratives comprise 10% of the Gospel of Luke. In other words, Luke sees these stories of the prophecies of the birth of John and Jesus, their births, and their, uh, the responses to their births as important for us to understand if we're going to understand the story of the Gospel. He devotes significant space to them. And the purpose of these stories, from, of these infancy narratives, is to give an overview of God's plan by showing the relationship of Jesus to John. John, as we will see, is the forerunner, the one who goes before the Messiah and announces that the Messiah is coming. Jesus is then the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies. It's clear through the narrative that Jesus is superior to John in every way. But we must not downplay the work of John the Baptist because he is a significant man, a significant prophet, and occupies a special place that we cannot miss. John is the one who's the great prophet who paved the way, and Jesus is the way. And so the narrative here goes back and forth between John and Jesus, finally focusing and honing in on Jesus. And so in these opening chapters, we, as I said, it goes back and forth between John and Jesus, the announcement of John's birth, then the announcement of Jesus' birth, and then the two mothers who have uh, Elizabeth and Mary uh, meet, and then Uh, We have the birth of John, and then we have the birth of Jesus, and then we have the reactions to Jesus' birth. So the book opens speaking of John, but all these accounts are for the purpose of showing the arrival 
of Jesus, the great Son of God. John Calvin, writing about how Luke focuses on John first, says this. He said, Luke very properly begins his gospel with John the Baptist, just as a person who was going to speak about the daylight would commence with the dawn. For like the dawn, he, being John, went before the Son of Righteousness, which was shortly to arise. So by speaking of John, we're speaking of the dawn, who is preparing and showing that the great Son of Righteousness is coming. And so in other words, we need to see how special John is so that we will listen to him when he speaks of and points to Jesus. And so we begin where Luke begins at the special announcement of the birth of John. In this account of John's, the announcement of John's birth, we are going to see three movements of the story which reveal God's grace and his salvation plans. We're going to see God's grace and God's salvation plans through this account of the announcement of John's birth. And so the first movement that we see in this narrative is first a tragic situation. The first is a tragic situation in verses 5 through 7. Luke begins by setting the stage. He gives the time period that these events took place. Look at it with me in verse 5. He says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. Here first he gives the time period. Luke uses the time designation of the Jews here by focusing on a king of the Jews. Whereas in chapter 2 and chapter 3, he's going to mention Roman rulers and therefore is going to be using Roman time in order to uh, specify the time place that those events took place. But here in verse 5, we get the only mention of Herod the Great. This is what we know in history as Herod the Great. There are many Herods in the Bible that we read of. And they are uh, start with Herod the Great, and then you have his children that come from him and flow down into the other Herods. But the first Herod that we meet on the page of the New Testament, here in Luke chapter 1, as well as in Matthew chapter 2, is a man named Herod the Great. Herod the Great was proclaimed king of the Jews by the Roman Senate in late 40 B.C. by nomination of Antony and Octavian. And then with the help of the Roman army, he gained possession of his domain in 37 B.C. So 40 B.C. was the declaration that he could be king. Three years later in 37 B.C., he is, uh, with the help of the Roman army, he actually is able to sit upon the throne because lo and behold, the people didn't really want him as king and so it took an army to make that happen. He reigned from 37 B.C. until 4 uh, B.C. And I know working with B.C. years kind of turns your mind around because you've got to subtract as we go forward in time. Uh, so uh, we're not in B.C. very long, but 
uh, try to track with me as we go. So from 37 to 4 is, uh, is when Herod the Great reigned. Now it says here that he's king of Judea. Judea, properly speaking, was a province that surrounded Jerusalem in the lower, the southern part of the nation of Israel, but believe here as a designation to speak of all of Israel because he was, he was king over uh, all of the land of Israel. In fact, we have a map that shows uh, the region that he reigned in. Now, all of the, from the light green, uh, all the areas of light green, not the dark green in the middle that says Decapolis, but everything else around that and down into the southern part of the map, it shows the, the reign of Herod the Great. He uh, ruled over Judea and Idumea in the south, and all the way up to Galilee in the north, Perea to the east, Samaria, and even up into reaches of Syria. And so this king who reigned over these areas is the king who's reigning when the New Testament opens. Now he's a vassal king, which means that he is given a certain amount of authority to reign over this land from Rome. As we said, he was proclaimed the king of the Jews by the Roman Senate. But the Romans aren't, aren't going to give him total power and total uh, authority. So he reigns under the authority of Rome. He operated under Rome's ultimate rule. Now he was called Herod the Great, not because he was a man of great leadership or great character or even a positive accomplishment, but he was strong in administration as well as in construction. And he completed vast construction projects all over the country. And for those of you who are able to go to Israel this next year, you are going to see many of these because the, the uh, material they used to build those was great stone. And stone happens to last a long time. And it takes a lot to uh, destroy buildings that are made of stone. And so even though we are thousands of years uh, apart from when these were constructed, Many uh, remnants of them still exist. And he built, he built things all over the country for two primary reasons. One was his pride, and secondly was his paranoia. His pride and his paranoia. His pride was he simply wanted to show himself to be the great man that he believed himself to be. And so he decided to build great things uh, that would, would cause visitors to come and see and be awed by all that he has made. On top of that, he wanted to be well-liked by the people that he ruled. So he built things that the Jews would like. Most notably was the temple in Jerusalem, which we'll get to later. But his paranoia, the second reason that he, he built things, was because he was constantly paranoid that someone was going to come and take his throne. Particularly, we're going to kill him and therefore usurp the throne. And that happened that paranoia happened to land upon his own sons. And so the, uh, this man was so self-absorbed that he devoted his wealth and power to protecting his reputation and protecting his life. And so just as some examples, to uh, showcase his greatness, he built the city of Caesarea. And I've got a, uh, a picture of Caesarea here. And this is a 
Uh, here in Caesarea, he, it's on the coast, but he created a harbor where there wasn't one. And you can still see remnants, um, I guess if you have really good eyes, up in the top corner here, there's like a, a theater that was there and there's a, his palace that was built here out onto the edge of the sea. He built an aqueduct over six miles long to bring fresh water into this city. And so you'd show up and you go, wow, there wasn't a city, really a city here. And now there's a majestic city and a harbor city that he had built. But he also built fortresses all over the country as well. As I said, he was paranoid that his sons would seek to kill him and look to usurp the throne. So I have a few examples of what some of these fortresses look like. The first I think I have is, is Her- oh, that's, that's the aqueduct in Caesarea. Again, still standing today, a huge feat, over six miles of that in order to bring fresh water from the Mount Carmel in the north into the city of Caesarea. But here is Herodium. Herodium, he commandeered a hill in the Judean wilderness and turned it into a mountain fortress in order to protect himself. And he put these around the country so that wherever he is at, he'd have a quick escape to be able to get to one of his fortresses. And this is what it looks like today as it's been excavated a bit on the top and down the sides. And this is an artist's rendition of what it may have looked like when it was fully operational. And you can see his hilltop fortress up there on top in which he could be totally protected. And, uh, and it's, it's fairly stark and majestic there uh, against the, the barren landscape around it. He even had some pools. He had aqueducts bringing water there as well. Uh, secondly is Jericho. We, uh, we had, there's remnants today of his, of his palace there in Jericho where he uh, built his, uh, his palace there. And then... Also at Masada, and Masada is just cool no matter what, and there's lots, of history, uh, there's lots of history that's at Masada, but uh, this isolated, you can't tell, but there's a, the canyon wraps around this little, this little hilltop here to the back, and so it's an isolated mesa that is on the edge of the, sea of, of the Dead Sea, and uh, you can see the trail, the path, this is called the snake trail, it goes up the side, and uh, there was, he built a fortress and palace there on the top of this rock. And uh, the next uh, photo here shows just some remnants that we have of his palace that he built. Uh, and he had uh, cisterns that were built up there that would collect rainwater. And so they were able to, to survive there in the desert and yet uh, live in luxury and protection. They're high upon these hills where no enemy could come and slay him. Anyway, so this, these are just examples of the building projects of Herod the Great that he built all over the nation of Israel for his pride and his paranoia. But for our purposes here in Luke chapter 1, Luke is referencing Herod simply as a time marker. He doesn't care really anything about Herod other than we're just going to use him as the day on the cal- as, as kind of a, a, a time on the calendar. In fact, it's, stri- it's striking because he's the great ruler of the day, and yet he's, this is the only place he's ever mentioned in Luke's narrative. Herod the Great, and he's just, 
you know, in those days when that guy was, when that guy was around. Um, he doesn't give him much. And I think that's intentional. Luke is intentionally dwarfing Herod the Great in comparison to the true king of Israel who is soon to be born. Luke wants us to see that this great king that you know is doing things all over the country and asserting his authority, he was a passing fad. But the true king of Israel is about to come. Herod, the self-absorbed king, who, out of his paranoia, not only built fortresses to protect himself, but he ended up killing several of his own sons. He killed them because he didn't want them taking the throne before he died. And so this, this king who kills others to hoard his power stands in stark contrast to Jesus, the king of kings, who laid down his life so that he might generously share his wealth and life with others. The contrast is stark. And Luke wants us to see the beauty and the life that is found in the king of kings. And so as a time marker, we know that, as I said earlier, that Herod the Great reigned from 37 to 4 BC. We know that from Matthew chapter 2, that Herod died soon after Jesus was born. And so the events recorded in our passage here probably took place around 6 BC. So in this tragic situation, after specifying the time period, Luke introduces us to the people. He brings forward his, the main characters of this story. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. So here we are first introduced to a man named Zechariah. Now some translations have it as Zacharias, and this is simply a transliteration from the Greek that has an S at the end of his name, but that Greek name represents the Hebrew name Zechariah, and so most translations spell it that way with the H at the end. The name Zechariah means Yahweh remembers, or Yahweh has remembered again, which if you think about it, it really fits what's about to take place. Again, think about the context. God has been silent for 400 years. There may even be questions, has God forgotten about us? And yet, the main character he chooses to use here at the beginning is a man whose name Yahweh has remembered again. Zechariah was a common name. It's used several of, used of several different men in the Old Testament, including one of the minor prophets. Zechariah was a priest, he said, it says, the text says, a priest of the division of Abijah. Now priests, as we know from the Old Testament, were those who carried out all the tasks of operating Israel's sacrificial system. So they would serve around the temple and deal with all the things associated with the, the worship of Israel. So they do things such as officiating at worship, leading in prayers, or they would uh, burn incense. They would uh, celebrate the liturgy. They would uh, accept sacrifices and offerings, and they were also a part of the, the butchering of the animals for the sacrifices. Now, 
this mention of being of the division of Abijah references a reality that the priesthood was divided into 24 divisions, named after the descendants of Aaron, who was the first priest. And we read about this in 2 Chronicles 24. And it's within these divisions that it broke down even further into eight or nine families each. So this was just a lot of organization and administration in order to organize the priests. And Zechariah, it says, was from the division of Abijah. This was eighth in the list of the 24. These divisions, as we will soon see, took turns serving at the temple throughout the year. They were required to serve two times a year for one whole week, and then on top of that, to also serve during the main festivals, such as Passover and, uh, and uh, Sukkot and, and the other main festivals that they uh, the Israelites would attend Israel or Jerusalem for. And so they would come, they would come from their towns, they would come to Jerusalem, they'd serve for a week, and then they would go back home to their towns where they would live the rest of the year. So this priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and then we are told that he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Zechariah's wife, we are told, is likewise the daughter of a priest. Now, priests, Leviticus 21 tell us, that they were required to marry an Israelite virgin. And so the genealogy of the wife of a priest was, was important. But they weren't required to necessarily marry another a priest's daughter. And so in one sense, uh, Zechariah was able to marry of a woman of high ancestry. So, because for a man and woman to come from priestly families says that they are, they are both, uh, they, they came from the best stock. They are both of the best families. The name Elizabeth is, is seen elsewhere in the Bible only in Exodus 6, verse 23, where in our English Bibles, the, transliteration from, the translation from the Hebrew doesn't say Elizabeth, but in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they translate the name of the wife of Aaron as Elizabeth. And so that name became used in Israel. The meaning is debated, but it's a name that speaks to one's trust in God. Again, a fitting name for one who is looking to God for deliverance, both personally and nationally. So Luke, after introducing us to their names, then gives us their character, introduces us to their character. And he says in verse 6, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. The, the way that Luke wrote this, he shows that this couple also stands in a different line of ancestry. So he spoke of the, the, the priestly line that they both came from. But these, this description shows that they also come from the line of those of great faith throughout Israel's history. In other words, there's a spiritual ancestry that Zechariah and Elizabeth come from. And we see this kind of description of the godly men and women of history uh, s spoken of this way. In fact, let's flip back and see some of these. Turn to Genesis 
chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. We're seeing other ways that God's people, the righteous ones in the Old Testament history, have been introduced in a similar way to what we see Zechariah and Elizabeth being introduced. And here we see Noah introduced in a similar way in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. It says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Again, you can hear the, the echoes of, of how Luke picked up on these kind of designations, the righteous, blameless, walking with God. Same is, is said of, of Abraham in Genesis 26. So flip to the right to Genesis 26. Twenty-six, verse five. This is God speaking to uh, Abraham's son Isaac, but speaking of Abraham, the Lord says in twenty-six, five, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Abraham was a man who obeyed. Turn also to the right to Job, chapter one. Job, chapter one. This also well-known introductory sentence describing the godliness of Job. Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Again, do you hear the, the echoes, this even opening up with there was a man in the land of Uz and in our, our passage we have in those days there was a man named Zechariah. We, we're getting this kind of connection between the Old Testament and, and these characters, Zechariah and Elizabeth, that the author is making. And so it says in our text that they were both righteous before God. Similar to what is said of these Old Testament saints. We can flip back to Luke chapter 1. Now he says that they were righteous. And it's important to say that this does not mean that they were somehow perfect. Or that they were able to stand before God in their own righteousness. And they did not need the sacrifice of Christ eventually for, to stand in their place. They, that would be both biblically and theologically inaccurate. And so I believe when it talks about these people being righteous, he's referencing two dynamics in their lives, and, and these are two dynamics that really hold true throughout the Scriptures, from the Old Testament to the New, of those who follow the Lord. And the first is, by saying that they were righteous, 
is saying that they were justified before God. They had justifying faith before God. Because you remember that Paul, in his argument for justification by faith alone, in Romans chapter 4, he references Abraham in Genesis 15. And saying that Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him as righteousness. And so in the same way, all those who who are sons and daughters of Abraham, who have put their faith in God, are able to be justified by their faith. And so too, Zechariah and Elizabeth, by trusting in the Lord, stood before God by faith alone. They had a right standing before God. But not only does it deal with them how they are righteous positionally before God, but I believe it also has to do with, by saying that they are righteous, means that they also lived righteously. In other words, that that righteousness played itself out in daily life. They had a righteous life that flowed out of their right standing before God. And this is the way it always works. Obedience flows from salvation. In order for us to live righteously, we first need to be righteous before the Lord. And so this dear couple not only had faith, but they lived out their faith. They loved God and they loved others. And they made decisions and lived according to the righteousness of God laid out in His Word. They were faithful saints who lived lives that pleased the Lord. We see that this designation of being righteous is used also of Simeon in chapter 2, verse 25. Luke 2, verse 25. Simeon, who's in the temple, it says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. He too, being designated as a righteous man. And so this this dynamic, this reality that, that we are made right before God by faith alone as we are justified in God's sight, and then based upon that position that we have before the Lord, we're able to then live righteous lives. We're able to make moral choices. We're able to do the things that please the Lord. And this is the same for us. If we are to be righteous people, we must first have a righteous standing before the Lord. We must place our faith in Christ and therefore be made right before Him. And John makes this case in 1 John. And so I invite you to turn over there in 1 John chapter 2. First John 2, verse 29. John writes, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Again, the argument is, you've got to be born of God, you've got to have the right standing with God first so that then right actions flow from that. 
chapter 3, same book, verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Righteousness flows from knowing the Lord. The same is true in the Old Testament. It's true today. That if we know the Lord, if we have the right relationship with him, it's going to play itself out in our lives with righteous behavior. And that was the case in Zechariah and Elizabeth. But after saying that they were righteous, he, he continues to describe them as walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And this idea of blamelessness is found throughout the Bible in both the Old and New Testament. And I think it's important for us to understand this this morning because I think sometimes we can read about those who are blameless and we have a little bit of a disconnect because we know that we are all guilty We know that we are all sinners if we're honest with ourselves. And even as believers in Christ, we know that we sin. And so the designation blameless can kind of make us feel uncomfortable at times. I know it has for me. I don't know if that's the same for you. Can I really say with the psalmist that I'm blameless? How do you get to the point where you're able to say that? Is that even something that I can claim? It's important to know that based upon what we know of the Scriptures, that blamelessness is not the same thing as sinlessness. Blameless does not mean sinless. But it does mean that, in this case, Zechariah and Elizabeth had achieved a level of maturity in their walk with the Lord where major sins were not evident in their life. And if any accusations were to come up, any blame that people would try to point their finger at them and say they're guilty of this, the accusations wouldn't stick. It's the, we would maybe use the term more above reproach as is used in the elder qualifications. Above blame, above reproach. These accusations don't stick on them. And the standard by which they lived is by the commandments and statutes of the Lord. In other words, how do we judge blamelessness? How do we know that we're walking faithfully and blamelessly? It's in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. It's not by us comparing ourselves with others and just saying that we're doing better than other people are. It's not our own standard of righteousness of what we think is, is good, but it's Believing what God says. And that's what this couple did. They faithfully and simply obeyed the Lord. Obedience is God says it and so I do it. And that simple reality defined this couple's life. But like them, I think we too need to see blamelessness as what we are aiming for in our lives. Too often, I think the goals for our Christian lives are too short. We just want to get a little bit better, but we don't look to be blameless. We don't look to see our lives free of sin. We've already accepted defeat. We know that they're, 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 we, we are forever going to have sin, and so then we, we bring our goal closer back. And yet, the standard of the Word of God is that we should be blameless, In fact, it should be the cry of our hearts that we want to live blameless lives. 
We want to live righteously before the Lord. And the whole scriptures call us to blamelessness, to live our lives free of reproach. Turn back to Psalm 119. I want to show you some of these calls to blamelessness. Psalm 119. As you may have guessed, this is a part one to uh, at least a part two sermon. Um, Psalm 119, the first verse. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. The psalmist says that there is blessing that comes to those whose way is blameless, who obey the word of God, who walk according to the word of God. In other words, if you choose to follow the Bible and live according to what God has said, you are not going to get the short end of the stick. You are not going to get a bad deal. You are going to receive blessing, is what God says. And the converse is also true, that if we disobey the word of God, if we stiff-arm the truth, and we don't live according to the word of God, that is not the recipe for blessing, instead for discipline from the Lord. We see, uh, turn to Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs chapter 11. Verse 5, the righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight, but the wicked falls by his own wickedness. In other words, blamelessness breeds righteous living. As we aim and we shoot to live righteous lives and seek to be above reproach in our conduct, that it continues to help us move in that direction. If... (laughs) For Christians who are, who are frustrated with, with, with how they're living and, and yet they're making choices that are sinful and that are wrong, that are disobedient to the word of God and they wonder why they can't stay straight, why they can't stay faithful. Well, as we make choices according to the word of God and the power of the spirit, that blamelessness continues to bring about straight and righteous living. Same chapter, but verse 20. We see that to live blamelessly receives the smile of God. Proverbs 11.20, Those of crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord, but those of blameless ways are His delight. God delights in those who are blameless. But we must not think that those who are blameless are those who have reached perfection or mastered the Christian life in any sort of way. Because God did not save us and then leave us here to figure it out and only the, the superheroes have figured out how to be, how to be blameless. Um, but our blamelessness is something that God has planned for and God has, is working to bring about. In other words, God has rolled up his sleeves and is involved in the work of bringing about blamelessness in your life and in mine. Flipped in the New Testament to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to see God's plan and desire for the blamelessness of your life. It is clear. Ephesians chapter 1, 
the great chapter describing all that God has done for us in salvation. Look in, start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. God's selection of us as saints included the end goal that you and I would be blameless and holy before him. That's his goal. It should be ours as well. Colossians chapter 1. Two books over. Colossians 1 verse 22. Start in verse 21, Colossians 1, 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Why? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Be encouraged, believer. Jesus died so that you would be holy and blameless. He had it in his sights when he went to the cross. And flip over a, uh, to first, just one book, to 1 Thessalonians 5. Seth read this earlier. That we can pray that God would work holiness and blamelessness in our lives. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Paul praying for the Thessalonians. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can pray along with Paul that we would be holy and blameless. It's something that we should strive for and something that we should pray for, that God would produce this in us. And at the end of the day, we know that when we stand before his throne and we'll be holy and blameless and faultless, it's not any glory to ourselves, but only glory to God alone as the great benediction of Jude 24 makes clear. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. God receives the glory for the blamelessness that he works in our lives. But friends, I encourage you to strive for this in your life. Do not settle to allow sin to have footholds in this corner and that corner. Do not allow the flesh to continue to reign in your mortal bodies, but submit yourself whole, body and soul, to the Lord and that you might be blameless in every area of your life. Even in the places that other people don't see, the Lord sees and you know is there. Strive for holiness. Do not give up. And we will be able to rejoice in the great gospel of what God has done for us. I love the verse in the hymn, The Solid Rock. that says, When he shall come with trumpet sound, O may I then in him be found, clothed 
in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Believer, knowing what you know of your heart, isn't it amazing that one day we will stand before the throne of God and the designation proclaimed over us is faultless. Faultless. All those faults, all those sins will be forgotten and cast away because we are in Christ. And if you are here this morning and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, if you do not have the confidence that if you were to die tonight and stand before the throne of God and you know that the declaration of faultless, you don't know if the declaration of faultless would, would be declared over you, and I call you now on the authority of the word of God to trust in Jesus. It's only in his sacrifice, only in being found in him, that you can be declared faultless before the Lord. It's only being clothed in his righteousness that you are able to stand. Because apart from him, our righteousness is as filthy rags. So I encourage you, don't leave this morning without knowing for certain where you would go if you were to die today. Go home trusting in Jesus and confident that you know that you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And that is the good news, the great news of the gospel, that we can be blameless and righteous before the Lord. Well, we have been able to see the righteous character of this couple this morning. And next week, we will continue to look at how God is going to use this couple in the story of the grand story of the gospel and how he's going to bring about the forerunner of the Messiah, John, so that we might listen to John when he shows up. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the promise of your word that we can be made righteous in Jesus. That because he was made sin upon the cross, we can be called the righteousness of God. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be able to live righteous and blameless lives. We know that we cannot do that in our own flesh, in our own strength. And so we cry out to you that you would please continue your great work in us, continue to make us holy and blameless here in this life. And we look forward to you receiving the glory as we stand before you blameless and holy with great joy. Father, would you work in each one of our hearts that we would desire to be holy as you are holy. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.